0: This evening. And if you're with us and you don't have a Bible tonight, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands and you'll be able to follow along with us with your eyes rather than just listening uh, to me speaking and trying to process it it in that way alone. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and currently in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we stopped at verse 8. We'll pick up things in verse nine tonight, but I wanted to just read one other thing last week as we were looking at this Nehemiah chapter eight, verse eight, this great uh, verse on teaching the Bible, which is not only helpful for those that God has called to teach the Bible, but also. Helpful for me when I'm sitting and listening to Bible teaching to understand what they're supposed to be doing and aiming at, because sometimes I can bring in my flesh wrong expectations to the whole thing and uh, rather than uh, what is supposed to be happening there. And I remembered an illustration that I just wanted to share as an encouragement uh, tonight uh, and, and the illustration related to the importance of the word of God and all It it goes like this. There was a churchgoer who wrote a letter uh, to the editor of a newspaper, the town he lived in, and he complained that it made no sense to go to church every Sunday. He said, I've gone for 30 years now, and in that time I've heard something like 3,000 sermons, but for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time and the pastors are wasting theirs by giving sermons at all. Well, this really started quite a controversy in the letters to editor column of the little town, uh, much to the delight, of course, uh, to, uh, of the editor. And so it went on for weeks and weeks until someone wrote this letter. I've been married for 30 years now. And in that time, my w- wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I cannot recall the entire menu for a single one of those meals. But I do know this. They all nourished me and gave me the strength I needed to do my work. If my wife had not given me those meals, I'd be physically dead today. And likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. So I think it's the Lord has actually brought that to my remembrance brought that illustration i heard it years and years ago to my remembrance every so often uh, both as a listener and then as a bible teacher and it's a great encouragement so it's always the word of god is doing its work sometimes it's a little like broccoli sometimes it's like meat and potatoes sometimes it's just like gravy and i i like angel food cake heaps of angel food cake and sweets and all of that but uh, sometimes We get that in its measure, too, but not as much as sometimes I'd like. So we come here now to uh, chapter eight, uh, verse nine, and we remember that the wall has been built uh, by Nehemiah in the city of Jerusalem with the help uh, of the people. The children of Israel have returned to their cities and their homes. But upon doing that, there was just this kind of move of the Holy Spirit within them. That God has done something very, very great here that we do not want to end. And so there was that recognition in their recent history following their Babylonian captivity and return to the land. There was the recognition that God had allowed Zerubbabel to come back and to rebuild the temple, and that was God's work. That was an encouragement to the Jewish people that God was going to reestablish them in, in some measure back into the land at that time. And then God sent a little while after that, some years, uh, Ezra, the priest, to come and teach the Jews the law of Moses and how they were to live their lives and to worship the Lord at that temple that had been built. And now. The third person that he had sent, God sometimes works in threes. He sent Nehemiah for the rebuilding of the physical wall of Jerusalem. And so they recognize this as an encouragement on the part of God toward them that God is at work. He wants to reestablish a Jewish presence in Jerusalem and in Judah. And so uh, they they recognize that. In, in order for them to be thoroughly established. It was going to require more than a temple. It was going to require more than even knowing the word of God. It was certainly going to require more than having a physical wall built around the city. But that all of those things, as wonderful as they are in their own place, they would not constitute a security for God's people or an assurance that they would continue to live in that land and not be displaced uh, by their own disobedience, as had happened by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, they recognized that the single great defense for them was not a physical wall, but was a spiritual wall that would be built around their lives through simple obedience to the word of God. And that's true of the body of Christ as a whole, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, and certainly true of us uh, individually. And so they called upon recognizing this, they called upon Ezra the priest to come and to read the law of the book of Moses. Uh, He complied with that. And all of this, we're told in verse 2, occurred on the first day of the seventh month. And so the word of God has been read in in great, gigantic amounts, five and six hours at a time. And then we have in verse 9 the response of the people. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. Well, this day was holy. It was the first day of the seventh month. And so it was holy and that it is. It was and is uh, the, the day of the Feast of Trumpets and the Jewish religious uh, calendar. But it was a holy day more than just. Uh, On the basis of that ancient feast, it was holy in the eyes of God because of the hunger of God's people for not only God's word, but an eagerness then to obey the word of God. And God was giving them understanding of the word. This was a beautiful day that was occurring. And so they said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Nehemiah, go your way, eat the fat. They weren't worried about that in those days. That means go ahead and eat the meat and all the fat that's around it. All right, let's head out back and do that. So they're having a big barbecue here and a great celebration. Eat the fat, the meat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. The poor who didn't have any food to bring to the celebration for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength now. What had happened to these people is something that happens in all of our lives at one time or another, and probably continually through our Christian lives here. They sat and this word of God is being spoken to them, and the word of God uh, lays out a very high and a very holy standard for God's people. God has a high standard for our lives, but he also gives us a very great. Power of the Holy Spirit to live up to that standard. So they're listening to the the high standard of the word of God. And then they're putting their lives up against the measure of that standard. And when they saw how far below that standard they had been living as a people, but also individually, they began to weep. They began to sorrow over their sin. Now, there's an it is true that. There are times in our Christian life when feeling bad is good, and there are going to be times like that. And this is an appropriate time to feel bad where I'm reading the word of God and I look. And here for me, I've walked with the Lord for a while. I know better. And I read something in God's word and I'm living my life way below that standard. And suddenly there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, and there's sorrow in my heart over living uh, such a low life and light of the price that Christ has paid for me to live a high life. And so there's that sorrow that happens in our lives. And a godly sorrow is a good thing, the Bible says. Godly sorrow works repentance. There is sorrow that is not godly at all. The sorrow of being caught. <laughs> godly sorrow is Lord. This is in, in disobedience to your word, and I want to repent of the direction I'm going in and go in in the direction of your word. But that happens in our lives. We let God down. We live below his standard. We sin. And there's a godly sorrow. Feeling bad feels good. It feels right in our lives. But we should never stay in that place. And that's what Nehemiah and the Levites are endeavoring to bring them out of that the joy of the lord is our strength so we come there's a difference between condemnation and conviction uh, the holy spirit never condemns us as, as god's people but boy can he convict us i've done something wrong or whatever it might be he can speak with a loud voice right inside here ah! Why are you blushing, David? Oh, you know, I'd be in line at the store and he's convicted me or something. So he can really raise up the volume. And, but always when the Holy Spirit is convicting of sin, always, he always infuses hope. He will convict us of the sin, but always it, with an endeavor that we would confess that sin, repent of it, and draw closer to God. The Holy Spirit never works to push us away from God. Now, condemnation and the devil uses condemnation very, very effectively. That's the exact opposite. That's where we sin or become aware of sin as we're reading the word of God, like there in this place. And then the devil comes in right behind it and says, you call yourself a Christian. You're going to pray after that. You think God wants anything to do with you after what he knows and all that, you better not pray for two months. Let him cool down. And the whole idea is just to push you away, away, away from the Lord. And so whenever you have that sense, is this pulling me toward the Lord or is it pushing me away from the Lord? I know whether there's the devil's voice working there or whether it's the Holy Spirit's voice. And so there is that place that when the Holy Spirit is working and he was working here, there was the conviction of their sin. But I tell you, a conviction of sin is a wonderful thing. You know what it says about these people? It said that their heart was still tender toward God. Their conscience was still tender for God. The dangerous place is when we can no longer be convicted of sin. Now we're in a really bad place at that point. Because God's got to bring in like dynamite to get through to us. And he's got a lot of dynamite. He'll do whatever he needs to do. And so here is this thing, though, where the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. But it's never to stop there. We go to the Christian bar of soap. First, John one nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then our joy is restored, the joy of a personal relationship with God, which is what he's talking about here. Our joy is restored and our joy is based in the fact that we serve a forgiving God, a God of second chances. And but we will never experience that joy short of confessing our sin and repenting. So it's like sometimes people, though they're confessing the sin and repenting and that's the hard thing and you always just stick there. No, that takes us then into a greater appreciation for the Lord and with it, a greater desire to obey him and to live for him. And so no Christian in the light of the sacrifice that has been made for us, the forgiveness of our God, the opportunity to repent and and to change our direction, we should never, ever live below Uh, A life of joy, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so with these words, the Levites quieted all of the people and uh, saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people, they went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and to rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. The wonderful thing to understand. The word of God. Now, I grew up a good portion of my life, certainly my childhood. I don't blame anybody else. I am not blaming anybody else. But I grew up thinking that the book was pretty much a closed book. I mean, I picked it up a lot of times when I played junior college basketball and we'd go to these different cities and. And, uh, I forget what league we were in, but we'd go up and play Feather River. We'd go to Reading. This was from Napa. We'd go here, there. These bus rides were forever. And they put us like in an army barracks or something and, or some, you know, hotel and like the TV is like 700 years old and you could get one channel up there, you know, it's a snow report. And, uh, the only thing in the whole room was a Gideon Bible in the drawer.
1: I didn't. I wasn't
0: smart enough to bring any books to read or redeem the time at that time. So I'd pull that Bible out and I'd read it. Boy, it was Greek to me. I mean, I just there's no life like it has uh, today. So I just kind of had that. You know, it's important to like be born again and important to be filled with the Spirit for the Bible to really open up to you. And and so I kind of had it in that mind. But when I was a child, and I don't know exactly what my spiritual condition was. In junior high and senior high, I'm glad the rapture didn't happen because I don't want to face the rapture in uncertain terms. But I don't know where I quite was with God. I I believe I knew everything that he said was true, but I I just wasn't uh, I, I, I just wasn't settled there yet. There's a guy named Bill McDonald, William McDonald, Believer's Bible Commentary, and I think 80 other books he wrote lived over in San Leandro home with the Lord now. But he would come to this little Bible church that my mom would take us to on Sundays, and he would open up the Bible. He'd come about three times a year. That's all we could get him for. It was a Plymouth Brethren church that had a rotating pastors. Different members of the congregation would teach each week, and he would come in. And I tell you, my jaw would drop how simple he would make the Word of God. And that it would be years as I would kind of go my own way. And one day walk into a Calvary Chapel in Napa, Pastor Mike Chattuck up there teaching, have the Bible open, and he'd read that Bible. We'd all look down, look at it, and then he'd explain what it meant. And we'd look back down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Chiropractors dream in that fellowship. And it was like a light went on for me. The Bible is meant. To be understood. And it just revolutionized things for me. And then I started to stumble onto Chuck Smith cassette tapes. Perhaps you remember those. And then for him, line upon line, precept upon precept, and the joy that entered into my heart to realize this wasn't a closed book. This book could be understood. And could be understood with teaching. And so beautiful season there for the children of Israel. Now, on the second day, the day next day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. So same people, same place. The next day they want more of the word. And as the word is being read to them, they found written in the law. "...which the Lord had commanded Moses, that the children of Israel were to dwell in booths according to the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountains and bring olive branches and branches of oil trees and myrtle branches, palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written." Now, as they're reading the word of God, and this shows us very practically how the word of God is to operate in our lives. So they get up the next day and and the word of God is being read again. And all of a sudden, the Ezra, the priest and the Levites are reading in the law of Moses as it relates to the feast of tabernacles, Old Testament uh, feast. And how it is that in the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's faithfulness to them. It was always occurred in like October, September, October of our year in the Jewish calendar. And it was a celebration of God's faithfulness after they brought in all of the the crops. We have a harvest party. They didn't have bounce houses in those days. So we do a little bit differently. So the celebration of God's faithfulness and bringing in the harvest. But it was also a celebration of a historical event for the children of Israel. And how that even following their disobedience of God, their unwillingness, you remember, to enter into the promised land. We're like grasshoppers in front of them. They're going to squish us. And Moses, what are you doing taking us into this place? They're going to slaughter us and all. And they wouldn't go into the promised land. They, they wouldn't believe God's promise in the light of the enemies and what it was going to require to obey God's promise. And it displeased God, their lack of faith there. So they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. God said, all right. And it was a pretty complaining group of people. He said, I'm going to let this generation die, except for a couple people. And I'm not going to take them into the promised land. You don't want the promised land. You don't get the promised land. And so he let that generation die off. But he was still faithful to them. And he provided for them for the 40 years, provided them. They had clothing, they had sandals for their feet, they had the manna to eat and all. So it was a celebration of God's faithfulness and grace to them, even after their disobedience. And of course, this would have been a great encouragement to this group of people because here they are now reading the Word of God, seeking God, following a 70 year captivity following their disobedience. So the big message to them is there's hope after failure. So this would have excited them. So they read about this feast of of the tabernacles and they say, all right, God's word says it. I like that. Those first four words in verse 14. And they found written for the child of God. That's the end of the discussion. If it's written in the book, then that's what we're going to do. And that was their attitude. And so they read the word of God and they realize, all right, the word of God commands this. The word of God says this. Wait a second. We are not doing that. But the word of God says, so what do we need to do to change that? That was their attitude toward the word of God. The same thing happens to us in a room like this or anytime we open up the Bible anywhere or we open up the Bible on our laps to begin the day and we read the word of God. And as we read it, we realize that our our life is out of sync with what God's saying in his word. And the idea is to then stop and say, all right, what needs to change? Not God's word, but my life. And so God to confess to God, God, I'm living below this standard. And so I recognize this is your will for my life. And I choose now in the power of your Holy Spirit to live what I'm reading right here in the scriptures. And that's a very practical way of demonstrating the washing of water with the word. As Paul talks about the word of God, it's a very practical way of James refers to the word of God as a mirror. So here they are. They got the mirror up. They're reading it. And the word of God says something uh, differently than what they can see in their own lives. And so they change that. And and that kind of an attitude toward the word of God is is going to bring revival to them and to their lives. And that's, that's the way of revival in an individual's life also, where the word of God doesn't become something that's dusty in the corner of our house or something that I just out of duty plug through every day. But just living with it and, Lord, all right, speak to me and anything your word says that my life isn't in line with, I'm going to uh, in, in your grace, I'm going to make that change. Very, very healthy attitude toward the word of God and important that we have that same attitude as well. And so the people then God said it. We're supposed to obey it? So they did. And then the people went out, and they brought them, and they made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. And so the whole assembly of, the, of those who had returned from the captivity, they made booths, and they sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, uh, that is the time of Moses until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. And so here they are. They take some branches from, you know, the olive tree and then some branches from here. And they make a little A-frame on the top of their houses. Their houses were flat, by the way. Don't you do this? And uh, or in the courtyards. they they put kind of a little bit of a tent together on it. And then the family would go inside and they would look up. And it's still a very pleasant time of the year in Israel at this time, just like it is usually here in September, October. And they lie there at night warm enough and all. And they'd look up and they could look right through the branches and see the stars and the moon and the whole thing. And they'd sit there and just look up and they would basically connect with a former generation of God's people. And the remembrance of how good God had been to them and then how good he was likewise going to be uh, to to them. And so it's just this kind of a practical hands on kind of thing of of driving home that that lesson to them. It must have been something to really sit and here's junior, you know, maybe X number of years old. And, you know, what do you think they thought about when they were out? I don't know. You know, the whole way to teach the lessons of of the Jewish history really uh, would have been something to be a part of it. Now, when it talks about the fact that this feast hadn't been kept uh, from the time of Joshua, we know that it had been kept uh, historically. But it it appears that the writer is talking about the fact that uh, that it had never been kept with this kind of joy or this kind of emotion and probably uh, never with this kind of a concentration of numbers. Everyone did it here. In, in, uh, in, in this context. And so it was a, a very, very special time. And also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. And so they kept that Um, That Feast of Tabernacles covered a period uh, of uh, of several days from the 15th to the 21st of the seventh month. And so when they they read it on the second day, learned about how it was to be kept, gave them about two weeks to prepare, uh, and then they prepared it. And so it brings us to the 21st day of the seventh month. And then in chapter nine, now in the twenty fourth day, so just three days later uh, of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. And so this occurs just two days, three days after the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's a lot of events happening in that seventh month of uh, of uh, of for them at that time so they're fasting they've got sackcloth on they've got dust on their heads all kind of outward expressions of mourning and grief and so there is this uh, kind of a, a spirit of repentance that is still on them there's this uh, desire to turn from any disobedience in their life to turn from any lukewarmness in their relationship with God they're wanting everything that they can possibly have uh, with God and then as a result of that That those of uh, Israelite lineage, they separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And so there were leaders there that were among the children of Israel and even non-leaders and they stood and and they confessed uh, their sins of uh, Disobeying God's law of separation from the pagan world, from the Gentile world, and the children of Israel were to separate themselves from Gentiles. Not all Gentiles was it required in the law, but to separate from those who were engaged in idolatry or who would tempt you into idolatry or a life of sin. And they had been violating that law in their lives, convicted by it, they confessed their sin, and they turned away from it. And they stood up again, watching the word of God in action in individual lives. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for one fourth of the day. And then for another fourth, they confessed and they worshiped the Lord, their God. Again, the order is very important. The word of God. It's not the sole purpose of the word of God, but one of the things that it does is it reveals God's will, his standard to us. So the reading of the word of God, anything that it would expose as disobedience in my life, they wouldn't just close the book up and then that was it. There was a time given of response then to what they had just read, where people could confess their sin, repent of Of any sin that the word of God had revealed and to make things right. And so very beautiful kind of order and structure to things. And then Jeshua and uh, all of these guys, and they're very important men. They stood on the stairs of the Levites and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. And so here comes a prayer and the Levites and then the the listing of, uh, of other names are listed here as well. And so they begin this prayer of uh, the longest prayer uh, in in the Bible. And it's basically a recap of their history. Uh, some of you uh, that are familiar with the Old Testament y- and you can even wonder how many recaps of Jewish history are there in the Bible? Because you run into them fairly frequently. The answer to that is Double Jeopardy. Alex, I'll take recap of Jewish history for ten thousand dollars the answer is eight eight times and this is one of those eight times and the recap of their history always was a recap of their failure and then a recap of God's greater grace to not allow failure and sin and the consequences of sin to have the final say in their lives and so uh, here the. Leaders are essentially and the people they're confessing their long history of failure as God's people and then acknowledging God's mercy and long suffering in them. It's interesting as you re- as we read through this and we will essentially read through this in just a moment. But it's interesting to note how often as their failures are listed that God's grace is also introduced with words like but yet. Nevertheless, and so we'll notice those as we go through God's grace, his mercy, having the final uh, say, whatever their failure was, God's grace and his long suffering was greater still. And his grace really, really is amazing. So they begin with praise to God. Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, as they cried out to the Lord which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. It's a good more verse for the Mormons. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. We pray to the God who made heaven and the heaven of heavens. And the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. And so he begins, as most of these prayers begin, with acknowledgement of the greatness of God. This is the great, this is how great God is. The, the God we are bringing our need to. The God that we're bringing our requests to. The God that we're bringing our problems and our worship and our praise to. Nothing too hard for Him. Nothing too difficult for His wisdom. Infinite Beautiful in every way. This is the God that we're trusting our lives and our situations to. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites and the Girgashites. To give it to his descendants, you have performed your words, you are righteous. So they they praise the Lord for his choice of Abram and Ur the Chaldees. Before Abram became Abram and Abra, Abram became Abraham, he's just a Gentile out there like everybody else. God chose Abram, made him Abraham, and brought the Jewish people a holy seed Out of that man in order to bring a Messiah into the world. They did not exist as a people apart from God's choice of Abram. So they just celebrate the grace of God in choosing Abraham to then make them a special people. So for us tonight, as we just give praise to the Lord in the same kind of vein from the vantage point of a Christian is to just praise him in our hearts for his choice of you, his choice of me. The choice of Abram was just like, why would you choose him over anybody else? Why would he choose you and me to be a part of his family? Yet the Bible says that he has. I like what somebody said. God's choice of me is the only thing that makes me doubt him a little bit. But he's chosen us. And there are certain things you don't think through too deeply. You just enjoy him and you celebrate him. Praise the Lord for his choice of us. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people in this land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them, and so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, and they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And so expressing thanksgiving to God for his redemption of them. Uh, from the bondage of Egypt. And so God not only saved them, chose them, but God also delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. All a picture of the price uh, that the Jesus, the, the price that was paid in order for the picture to be performed in the Old Testament was the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Jesus came into the world in his life was shed in order to deliver us, not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the greater bondage of sin. So much to be thankful for. And so they, uh, speaking of this deliverance and the great miracle and their persecutors, you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty water. So sometimes you hear people argue about, well, I, I know the Bible says that God parted the Red Sea and they went through. And the children of Israel did. And then the Pharaoh's army tried to go through and then and then they were washed away and and killed in judgment. But it probably wasn't the Red Sea. It was probably the Reed Sea. And uh, because they don't want to believe in miracles, the Reed Sea is about 18 inches deep. Well, you've got a a problem here, because Moses had a problem with it. Others have a problem with it. Ezra has a problem with it here. He describes it as being a deep water that the persecutors were drowned in. And moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. And you also came down on Mount Sinai. So not only these great things, but then you gave us your word, gave us your law. And you spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws. Praise the Lord for his word, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought uh, uh, brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them for his. So all of his grace and his tender care for them in the journey from uh, Egypt to the border of the land of Israel to go in for the conquest. But. But they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage, to go back to Egypt. But, oh, there it is, circle it in your mind, if not in your Bible. But you are God. This is on the heels of their failure. Ready to pardon. They knew this about God. We need to know this about God. He's a sinner's Savior. But you are God. Ready to pardon. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Abundant in mercy. And what is the evidence? Because you did not forsake us. What is the evidence that God is all of these things? Frank, right here in the front row. And me and you and every other Christian in the whole wide world. God bless you, Frank. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet, there's that word in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud. Did not depart from them by day to lead them in the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And moreover. You gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. And so they took possession of the land of Sihon and the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. And so the people went in this under Joshua, possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. They gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities. This was all God's doing. It wasn't their military prowess. They took strong cities in a rich land and possessed houses full of goods. Cisterns wells already dug cisterns are wells that are out of stone not the hardest ones of all. So they went into this land and, and the houses were not only built, but thoroughly furnished when they took them over cisterns already dug vineyards in place, olive groves in place, the fruit trees in abundance. And they ate and were filled and grew fat and And no condemnation of that, apparently, here right in this passage. So they they ate and they were filled and they grew fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. And so, for the most part, when they went in and they conquered the land under the oversight of Joshua, this was how they found the cities. They just went in and they simply took them over. Might have needed to paint a little bit, replace the entry tile, but other than that, this place was ready to go. And it's all a picture of the it's it's the the uh, the fullness of the land, the land of milk and honey, a picture of all of the promises that are ours. The land of milk and honey for the Christian is all of the promises of the New Testament. They all just sit there. They just sit there and they wait for us to come in and possess and inhabit all because of the sacrifice of Christ. Nevertheless, oh boy. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast their law behind your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets who testified against them. Speaking of the period of the judges to turn them to yourself and they were great provocations. And therefore, you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. In the time of their trouble, they cried out to you. You heard from heaven. And according to your mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hands of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did again did evil before you. And therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet. When they returned and cried out to you. You heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commands, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, they stiffened their necks and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, Yet they would not listen. And therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Speaking of the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Nevertheless, here's another one of those beautiful words. But yet, nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. And now, therefore, they come to the present tense of their need. Now, therefore, our God. The great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small to you that has come upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. All the problems that we've had since the Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel and then the Babylonians took the southern kingdom of Judah. So we've had problems since then. And then notice there's this qualifier. However, you are just in all that has befallen us for you have dealt faithfully but we have done wickedly that's a very very important it's very important to be strong in the grace of God but it's also very important for the backslider and that's what they've been is to not blame God in any way for the life that resulted from their disobedience or even for his active judgment that he can introduce into our lives to bring us back to him. And it's great maturity on their part. God, we just got hammered like crazy in those years. But we don't blame you not one bit for it. We did wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, nor or in many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. And here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us. Lord, this is a great land to be in. but All of the wealth of it, all the blessing of it in, in many respects is going to the Persian Empire that rules over us. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. And also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. We have lost our sovereignty because of our sins. And because of all of this, we're just going to fold up the tent and call it quits. Now, there's always hope in a situation that God is involved in. And because of all of this, we choose to make a sure covenant and to write it. Our, lore, our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. I said, in light of that long history, we choose... A different course. And we choose on this day to commit our lives. We can't commit anybody else's life to the Lord. We can only commit our own life to the Lord. We commit this place, this point in time now to serve you and what your word says. And let's see what kind of a history you will give us out of the history that we have had. And so they made that covenant with God. And we'll pick that up a little bit next time. One of the beautiful things about this particular prayer that they make, and it's a kind of an interesting, even introduction uh, to the Lord's Supper, when we here we have the symbols of Jesus's body and his blood, which we're going to partake of as Christians in just a moment. And the cross of Calvary, it, it speaks to us two great things. And I mean, the two great things almost seem like they're, um, you know, at, at polar opposites of the extreme of things. And yet they're so interwoven with each other. And Jesus hanging upon that cross, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus hanging on that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sin and to appease, to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. Our sin was as bad as anybody else's sin. That cross reminds us of the seriousness of sin. No one can look at the cross of Calvary and say sin is no big deal. That's the fight that we have in the culture in the United States of America right now is not to get people to realize that they're sinners when they realize that the standard is perfection, but to get people to realize that sin is serious business with God. Just because it's not serious business in the world anymore doesn't mean that God has changed His attitude related to it. So the cross of Calvary reminds us of the seriousness of sin, but the cross also communicates to us the greatness of the love of God and that God's love for us is greater than even our sin. He loved us and died for us when we were yet sinners. And all the way through this prayer, you see this um, strong, uh, on the part of those that are praying the prayer, this strong recognition of the seriousness of of their sin and in their past. And, And... And and a, a, a real sober mindedness about disobedience, but interwoven throughout the whole prayer is a great, great confidence in the love and the grace of God. And in order for us as Christians to explore the fullness of the Christian life and to navigate this life on our way to heaven, it's important. To. Realize that those two truths don't oppose one another, but that they're complementary and that we need to possess both realizations in our Christian life and to realize that they can be equally recognized by a child of God. A child of God, a Christian can have a great understanding and appreciation for the importance and the seriousness of holiness And at the same time, hold just as great an appreciation and understanding of the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. It seems like you're going to have to choose one or the other, but they both work equally in our lives. And if you load to one to the neglect of the other or load to the other to the neglect of one, we're all going to get messed up. And the Lord's Supper communicates those two things and tonight as we partake of the cracker a symbol of Jesus' body, a good time to just sit here this evening and allow the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of disobedience, the importance of obedience to the Lord to just fully impact us once again, and then at the same time as we partake of the cup to stop. And to also meditate upon the importance of recognizing how gracious and how merciful and how forgiving the Lord is. And so these will be our themes of meditation as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. Samuel and the team leads us in worship. If you come forward to lead us in worship, that'd be great if the men would come forward to serve communion, to just allow these two great truths that are found in this prayer to once again anchor our lives in case we've drifted over to one direction or the other direction. Praise the Lord. For holiness and the privilege of living a holy life. Praise the Lord for grace and forgiveness. Let's worship the Lord tonight as we pass the bread and, and the cup. Take the bread, hold on to it, and then we'll pray together and we'll partake together. If you are not a Christian yet tonight, then you then don't partake of the Lord's Supper until you are, because it's for Christians. But sit, continue to enjoy the service, the work of the Holy Spirit and things, and then give your life to the Lord tonight after the service, and then partake with us next month.
1: forgiven because you were forsaken I'm accepted you were condemned I'm alive and well your spirit lives within me because you died and rose I'm forgiven, because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit lives within me, because you died. given because you were forsaken. Joy to in Let me Let's lift the bread before. Him.
0: The Lord's Supper is a time of examination, not self-examination, but examination of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in speaking of the Lord's Supper to the church at Corinth. He said. If we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged of God. So as we hold the symbol of our Savior's body, the idea is that if we are never examined or never allow ourselves to be examined by the Holy Spirit any other time than at the Lord's Supper, but that it would at least happen at that time. And so the idea is that following the partaking of the Lord's Supper and we head out to pick up our kiddos and go out to the car and on our way is that no present tense, willful, deliberate sin would be able to survive this experience of partaking the Lord's Supper without sin being confessed to God, repented of, and a commitment being made to live a holy life in the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we hold this symbol of Jesus' body up to Him, I just want that to happen in any of our lives. It's kind of a wake-up call. We can fall asleep to these things. The privilege of a holy life, the reputation of God, is attached to our lives. We watched this week, for those of us who are news people, you watched a legend, Joe Paterno. Thought he was going to go down. I mean, what a difference 24 hours Makes, going to go down is the greatest football coach, college football coach in the history of college football. And then one little scandal breaks out that turns out to be a terrible, terrible scandal, and everything is turned upside down. Because this person's reputation was tied to this person's reputation who made this decision and that reputation, and our reputation is tied to Christ. So the importance of anything that is keeping us from a holy life tonight, to repent of it, confess it as sin to the Lord. We're going to leave out here from from this room tonight as a people that are committed to that kind of a life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the privilege of holiness. We thank You for a Savior that has modeled holiness for us. And the most attractive life that has ever been lived. We thank you for our Savior that has provided us with the forgiveness and the freedom from condemnation to allow us to live that kind of life. And the Savior who has provided us in the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability and power to live a holy life. And we just choose, Lord, not grudgingly or having it put upon us in any way. We choose with thankful hearts tonight a holy life and commit, Lord, in your grace to being obedient to your word for your glory and the good of your reputation. Thank you, Lord, that you have tied our lives to that privilege of being a part of your reputation in this world And we thank you that we can be an influence for good. We pray, Lord, that as sin has been confessed to you in this room tonight and repentance has occurred, we pray and ask as a church body that you would freshly refill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, baptize us with the Holy Spirit, giving us the will to do and the power to do of your good pleasure. We ask it in accordance with your word, Lord. We receive it now from heaven's throne, and we do so, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together.
1: Blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. It speaks righteousness for me, stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. A better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense. And Jesus, it's your blood. joy of that is our strength. Let's lift
0: the cup to Him tonight. Father, we pray that You would look at our hearts and read our minds as well as listen to my collective prayer tonight. We thank You to a person For all of the yets and the buts and the neverthelesses that are a part of our history with you, as much as the children of Israel had, we give you praise and thanks, Lord, not just with our words, but from the bottom of our heart, Lord, with a gratitude that we cannot express in words. For the greatness of your grace and mercy and love and forgiveness that you have shown us. Lord, we've noticed. We haven't noticed all of it. But what we have noticed makes us love you all the more. Makes us so thankful for you, Lord that you are a sinner's Savior, that your forgiveness is so great. Thank you for a sacrifice that was and is greater than all of our sins. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ tonight and the life that we live is a result, the freedom in our mind, the freedom in our heart from condemnation and from guilt. Thank you, Lord, for how his sacrifice has ministered to every need that we have. Thank you, Lord, tonight. From 4300 American Avenue, Modesto, California, 95356, we give you praise. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. And let's stand together. If you're here, here tonight and you are not a Christian, as I said, we'd love to talk with you about giving your life to the Lord. There'll be pastors and men and women up in front immediately after the service. Come up and talk with us about Jesus, His life, His claims, what He has to say about you, and as the